You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, vehicularly speaking, uh, I was always a loser when it came to cars. Uh, My first car was a two-tone blue Oldsmobile Buick uh, Omega. It was longer than me, bumper to bumper. It was also older than me. Uh, I bought it for $60, and uh, I remember as I drove it, it idled at 15 miles an hour. So when you put it into drive, you better be ready, because it was going to go. It also had a very loose steering wheel. So when you wanted to turn, you had to get started early and then start the recovery early. And, uh, but it also honked every time you turned right. And so uh, I would drive by a couple different middle schools on the way home from school every day, honking at little middle school girls, which, which made it weird. Um, turns out the previous owner had driven that vehicle in a flood. There was water in all kinds of places water should not be. And so that thing died very quickly. And I moved on to a Nissan Maxima. Then I remember when I got it, it had this uh, sultry female voice that would speak to you except there was problems with the circuitry, so she had lost her mind. So I would be driving, and she would go, right door is open. I'm like, no, it's not, baby. And she's like, left door is open? No, keys are in the ignition. I'm like, I know that. And then it would just die. And I would have to try to steer it dead stick into the side of the road. Uh, I spent a lot of time on the side of the road with that little Nissan Maxima that I ended up giving away to a family. Uh, After that, I drove a uh, Buick that was wide enough that you could lay down across the seats and not touch both doors. Uh, That car didn't last long, though, because some youths beat it to death with bats. It was towed away to a junkyard, and I couldn't afford to get it out, so I just had to let it go. And then for a brief amount of time, at age 23, I was driving, at that point, a minivan that was also dying, and Ben, as a youth pastor, was paid in, you know, a dollar And so I was in a vehicular need, and it wasn't looking good. Now, I have to specify in all this, I was not a victim. I was terrible with cars. My dad was terrible with cars. I inherited that, then I owned it. I never changed the oil. I didn't know what to do with cars. It was a mess. Uh, But with all that known, it was a shock to me. Uh, I remember when a woman came up into my office one day, and she said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, yeah. And she said, I want to give you my truck. And without even looking up, I just said, I can't afford your truck. And she said, no, you don't understand. I want to give you my truck. Do you want to come see it? I was like, sure. And so I went downstairs. And I remember as I walked downstairs from my building and opened the door, there right in front of the door was a brand new, bright red Dodge Ram 1500 leather seats. This thing was tricked out. And I remember looking at it and I'm like, what is your beat up truck behind this one? Like, what is this thing? Like, is back there? And she's like, no, that's the truck. And I said, what? What do you want, like an installment plan, like a payment plan? Like, I can't, I can't do this. I get paid in, like, happiness and goodwill as a youth pastor. Like, this isn't going to happen. And she said, no, you don't understand. I'm trying to give it to you. Do you want to drive it? And I said, well, I can't. I'm about to leave the country and go to Europe, which suddenly made it sound like I lived too charmed a life. I can't take your free truck. I'm on my way to Italy. But I was like, no, I, I can't drive it right now. And she said, well, when you come back, call me, and I'm going to give you this truck which I got to tell you was the weirdest phone call I'd ever made in my life. Like just to dial up a stranger and be like, I'm here about the truck you're going to give me. I just expect her to be like, what are you talking about? I don't know. I actually don't know. Sorry. And just hang up. <laughs> but I called her and she said, uh, yeah, meet me down at the uh, you know, title office or whatever. So I drove down and uh, I remember I got into this office and she had already signed the paperwork. And so they handed it to me. I signed it. And then she threw me the keys and the title, got up and started walking out the door. And I stopped her and I said, wait, 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 wait a minute. 
I said, I, I don't even know how to say thank you. And she said, that'll work. And then she left. And so I went downstairs and, and I sat in this truck. And I remember as soon as I sat there, um, I didn't suddenly feel happy. I didn't suddenly feel grateful. I felt a rush of anxiety. Like, I, I don't deserve this. Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't earn it. I can't pay for it. I, I have not had a track record with vehicles that makes this make sense. Nothing about this feels right. I've got to do something. And I remember as I felt that, I just tried to do an inventory of what Ben has to pay this woman back. And I was like, I have nothing. There is nothing I could offer her that would help her in any way. It would be insulting if I tried. Hey, will a check for $20 do it? But don't catch it till the first of the month. Like, I, I don't... <laughs> I can't give her something commensurate to what she gave me. And so I sat there and I felt really uncomfortable about it. And I was like, I got to give this thing back. Like, I can't do this. And I'm like, no, she wanted me to have it. And as I started to wrestle with that, I'm like, man, what am I supposed to do? And I started to pray. And I remember as I was praying, I felt like the Lord reminded me, like, Ben, you asked for a car. Your minivan's dying. You needed a car. And I brought you a car. And I realized at that moment, I, I had wanted to earn it. And what I needed to do was just let my shoulders drop and just receive it, which is sometimes the hardest thing to do. And in that moment, I thought what would honor this lady is not me trying to pay her back. That, that would actually dishonor her gift. What honors her is for me to enjoy what she gave. And so as I closed that prayer, I thought, well, then I'm going to enjoy my new truck. But before I drove out of that parking lot, I named it, which I had never done with previous vehicles. And I named the truck Grace. Because that's what grace is. Grace is an extraordinary gift from an unobligated giver to undeserving people. And it produces incredible joy. And that's the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God landing in the lives of undeserving people from an unobligated God gives an unbelievable gift of union with him by his kindness alone, not your efforts. That's the foundation of our message. We preach a gospel of grace. And if we're honest, so many of us in here, we say, yeah, I know that, but it's so hard to accept. Uh, it's interesting, um, the uh, Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University does a American worldview inventory uh, every single year. And it's surveyed data collected by Dr. George Barna. And in 2020, they found that 48% uh, of American adults say that you can do good and be good enough to earn a place in heaven. They ascribe to a salvation can be earned doctrine. But what's interesting is that's almost half of Americans, 48%. But then when they isolate just Christians, they find something shocking. The number of people that say heaven can be earned, the percentage goes up to 52%. 52% of people who claim to be Christians say, I can do good and be good enough to earn heaven. Now, what's interesting about that, though quite a bit of us believe that, statistically speaking, somewhere between 48 to 52% of this room believes that. Here's the only problem with that. Not only does the New Testament profoundly disagree with you, if you espouse that doctrine of salvation can be earned, you make the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, very, very upset. 
And I don't know if you caught that in this letter to the Galatians. Normally when Paul opens a letter, he names himself and his crew. He says who he's talking to. Then he prays something and then he compliments them. He says something nice about them. Wonderful way to start a letter. He doesn't to the Galatians. He's like, I'm Paul, you're the Galatians. You know what? I'm shocked that you guys have already punted the gospel of grace. Like, what's the matter with you? He calls them fools twice. He's very upset that if you say, hey, salvation can be earned, the, the uh Entrance into heaven is something that I can accrue enough good to accomplish. If you deny a gospel of grace, you not only disagree with the word of God, you make the scriptures angry. If you add to the work of Jesus, you anger the words of God. Isn't that interesting? But we gotta figure this out because we've been talking about the law, the Old Testament, particularly the law as, as espoused in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we've been talking about the fact that the law, these commands given to God's people in the Old Testament are good. And so some of us go, wait a minute, the laws are good, but if I do them, it makes God mad? I don't understand. And for many people, that is very confusing as how does it relate, uh, how do we relate to the law? You, you see it with, um, especially non-believers, they go, wait a minute, like, you believe this book, you base your life on this book, but there's things in here you don't do. It says don't have tattoos. It says don't eat shellfish, but you're sitting there having shrimp scampi all tatted up. Like, well, you just pick which passages you want to obey and disregard other passages. Then why should I believe the passages you happen to like about sexual ethics or marriage? If you're picking and choosing, why can't I? Or maybe your whole book's dumb. And for some of you, the most you've ever heard Leviticus quoted is by non-believing friends who are mocking your faith. And you go, um, let me get back to you on that. Can someone give me a ruling on how we relate to the law? And we don't understand it. But I think deeper than that for us, so we gotta figure that out. How do the people of Jesus relate to the law? Is it by the law or is it by grace? But I think deeper than that for many of us, the reason why we're even talking about this and doing this series is because underneath that question is the deeper question of how do I be okay? How do I know God's okay with me? And for many people, we say, well, yeah, you just be a good person, do your best. And if you feel like you're reasonably winning at life, that makes sense. But the minute you are in touch with your own brokenness, you know that's not good enough. And for many of us, we are accruing self-help books by the dozens, and we are attempting to find some ladder we can climb to arrive on some platform where we will finally be at peace with ourselves because we know we're not enough. It's interesting. I watched a movie again recently, an old movie from the 1980s called The Mission, uh, and it ro stars Robert De Niro. And uh, it's so old that Liam Neeson plays the young apprentice. That's how old this movie is. And uh, Robert De Niro is a, a slave hunter in South America and defiantly wicked. And then in one moment, in a fit of anger, he murders his own brother. And when he's put in prison, after he realizes he murdered his sweet brother, suddenly it dawns on him what a horrible human being he really was. And in that moment, someone comes to him and offers him forgiveness and redemption. And when he really gets a good look at himself, he says, I'm not worthy of all that. I'm not worthy to be forgiven. I'm not worthy to be redeemed. But then this minister says to him, but are you willing to try to earn it? And Robert De Niro stacks onto his back a huge burden of all these, uh, this armor and metal and implements and then tries to climb a mountain through a waterfall to, through my efforts, scale to a place where I can suddenly possibly find forgiveness. Can I work hard enough to be okay? There's something about us that's drawn to I've got to earn it, and we got to figure this out. 
And so I want to summarize Galatians in the little bit of time we have left and, and, and really understand how do we reconcile this impulse to earn and a law and commands with the grace and kindness of God. And it's really going to fall under these kind of three headings of the pull of works, the power of God's promise, and the purposes of the law. But to give you some context, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible in the Old Testament, God introduces us to a man named Abraham. And he moves Abraham, we got it on this map, to this little piece of land. Not that map, that's the desert. We got the other map? There it is. God moves Abraham to this little piece of real estate here and, and tells him that through your seed, through your descendant, I'm gonna bless every family on the planet. And so Abraham has a family, that family grows into the nation of Israel. Then you fast forward several thousand years and Jesus Christ shows up. And Jesus' entire ministry happens in just this little region right here. And then he dies, is buried, and resurrected here in Jerusalem, which is about right here. And when he's done with that, after he raises from the dead, he tells his first disciples, he said, hey, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to tell people what I just did. And you're going to do it in Jerusalem. You're going to do it in Judea, the surrounding area, up into Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. He said, I'm about to send you out so you can radiate out the message of what I've done. Go tell the world that God wants a relationship with you. And God has made a way, not by you climbing up to him, but him coming down to you through the God, man, Jesus Christ. That the author of our story wrote himself into our story so we can know God through Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. And so they begin to do it. And they begin to radiate this message out from an entirely Jewish community. It begins to radiate up to right here. There was a town called Antioch, and it was the first multi-ethnic church. Suddenly, it's not just a bunch of Jews together. It's people from all different kinds of nationalities banded together under the leadership of the apostle Paul. And then from there, Paul and Barnabas launch out, and they start to spread the gospel all through uh, the world to the west. And this area here, this whole area, is called Galatia. He starts coming to these people. They're mostly not Jews at all, just Gentile people, telling them about the good news that God wants a relationship with you and made a way through Jesus. They start to believe this message, and they get really excited. And then some men from Jerusalem come up to this area of Galatia, and they tell them, hey, that's great. You believed in our Messiah. Congratulations but you're not done. That's just step one. So you put your faith in our Messiah to have a relationship with God, fine, but there's a whole law you gotta conform to. So step one is you gotta get circumcised. We did that as babies. Uh, step two, you gotta change your clothes. You're wearing clothes with two different claws sewed together. What are you doing? And number three, you gotta stop it with these pulled pork sandwiches. That's over. We gotta get you on some dietary clean laws. And they start to add all these different stipulations to the gospel. And Paul writes this letter where he's really, really mad. And that's where you saw at the beginning, where he says, I am astonished. You're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, but there are some who want to trouble you and distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. He said, we offered you the grace of God through Jesus, and they're distorting that message, and that's cursed. It's cursed what they're doing. And then he tells two stories. And we read those stories in uh, Galatians chapter two. He tells the story of when he went down to Jerusalem to meet with the original disciples. And then he tells the story of when they came up to Antioch to meet with him, particularly Peter. And he tells the story of when he went down. He said, you know, I came to Jesus. I knew Jesus. I began to preach the message of Jesus. But then we saw, he said in chapter two, verse one, he says, after 14 years, 
I went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me, and I went it because of a revelation, and I said before them the gospel I proclaimed to the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. So he says, there came a moment in my ministry, about 14 years in, where I went to Jerusalem, went to the old school apostles and said, hey, I've been telling all these Gentiles, you can have peace with God just through the grace made available and trust in Jesus that you don't have to add to it adherence to the law. I've been letting them not do that. They can still be Gentiles. They don't have to suddenly culturally become Jews in order to be right with God. Are you guys cool with that? And he said, I came to show them like, hey, have I been wasting my time? Is this in vain or are we all good? And then he says, he brought a guy named Titus who was a Greek. That means he's not Jewish. And so he wanted them to see what, what would they do with Titus? He was exhibit A. He was a test. And he told the apostles what he was teaching, that you can be right with God by faith alone in Christ alone. And he said, they were fine with it. They added nothing to my message. And they said, even Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. That was the test. If he was like, can you be saved and brought in a relation with God only by the work of Christ, not by our work added to it, that we can know God that way? Yes, you can. Okay, so you cool with Titus? And if they would have been like, yeah, we just gotta get him circumcised. We gotta change those clothes and no more lobster bisque for you. Like if they started doing that, then he'd be like, you're adding to it. It's Christ plus and he says, they didn't add anything to my message. What's interesting about that is he doesn't say they didn't change my message. He said they didn't add to it because Christ plus something equals nothing. It's Christ plus nothing that gives you everything. I don't say, thank you for your free gift. Now let me earn a little bit of it. Thank you for the gift of grace. Now let me pitch in a little bit. That nullifies the grace of God, is what Paul said later. I don't nullify his gift by trying to pretend I can pay for it. Will $20 work? No, it won't. So it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. And he says, they didn't add a thing to my message. And then he says, not only that, they extended me the right hand of fellowship. They're like, you're my brother. And he was like, all right. And he took off and everything was cool, right? And he says, and I love that about the false teachers, he said, that whole message of adding to Christ, it was false teachers trying to bring us into slavery. He says, if you try to earn the smile of God, he calls that slavery because you can't earn it. When will it ever be enough? Uh, it's interesting. I remember when I saw Saving Private Ryan, the movie, I don't know if you've seen that movie, uh, they, they saved Private Ryan. I don't want to give that away, but they, they are able to accomplish it. I remember when I went to it, uh, I walked into the wrong theater by accident. My mom was so excited about showing it to us, and we walked in right at the end as Matt Damon's face, Private Ryan, turns into an old man. I was like, who's that guy? And she's like, no! I gave away the end that Private Ryan lives. But I'll never forget, I walked in at that moment, and I'm just watching Tom Hanks die, which is a hard thing to watch, you know? And then you realize... Tom Hanks and all these other soldiers, they gave their lives to save Private Ryan. How amazing. I will sacrifice myself so that you can live. And when they're sacrificing themselves, and right as Tom Hanks is dying, he looks up at Private Ryan, whom he saved by his kindness, and he says, earn this, and dies. You go, what a horrible thing to say. <laughs> And now you see this guy as an old man and he's looking at that grave and he's like falling over the like, why? And you're like, how is it ever enough? 
How much could you do? You'd be like, you know what? I think we about evened it out. You know, uh, there was a payment plan on uh, what's worthy of your sacrifice, and uh, I think I'm about there. You can't earn it. And what does that mean? It means every day you wake up with not enough, not enough. It's never enough. It's never enough. Uh, for me, I led a college ministry for years, and if you don't know this about college students, it, it, it's zeal without wisdom. I, I want to do something important, but I don't really know what I'm doing. And... <laughs> So what I saw happen in our college town where people would come all the time and come into the Christian community like these guys and said, hey, are you serious about following Jesus? No, you're not, because if you were, you would be, and then they would add. You're not really serious because you would be handing out tracts at Walmart at 2 a.m., so you're not really saved. And I'd watch kids do that. Oh, yeah, but you're not really because you haven't done these ecstatic experiences and you haven't accomplished all these things. You haven't done that. And they begin to add all these things to Jesus. You're not real unless you've done A, B, C, D, and E. And I would watch it terrorize these students. And let me tell you how this would happen. They would come up to me as the leader of one of the larger ministries on campus, and they would tell me I was not really saved because I hadn't done, and it was always some new thing every three years. And then eventually, those same kids would come back Exhausted. And I remember talking with one where he had tried so hard and he would wake up at night and every time he woke up, it's not enough. You're not working hard enough. You're not praying hard enough. You're not serving hard enough. It's never enough. It's tyranny. It's slavery. It's slavery. I'm trying to earn freedom and it's never enough. And some of you grew up in a spiritual tradition like that. And that's why you hate church, why you don't wanna be here because you think you're just gonna strap onto me a pack. I gotta carry up the waterfall. I can't do it. Some of you, it's not spiritual. You just kind of created your own. If I get enough money, if I get enough success, if I get enough power, if I get enough influence, I'll finally get the approval of my dad or some peer group or something that makes me feel okay with me. And you wake up every day and the first thought is not enough. It's never enough. It's slavery to live a life like that. And Paul says it's a distortion of the message of God. But it's attractive to us. It, 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 it gets us. It got Peter. That's the next story that they extended to Paul the right hand of fellowship. You're good, Paul. And then what happens? Peter comes up to visit and he, Paul says, he was eating with us. He was hanging out with us. He was just hanging with this multi-ethnic community, kind of living among us. And he's trying different stuff. Like, what is this? Shrimp scampi? This is amazing. Oh my gosh. Like, what is that? Pulled pork? Weird. Give me some. And he's just sort of eating with them. And then he said, some Jewish brothers came up and what happened? He got self-conscious. Oh no. And so he started eating only at the Jewish table not at the Gentile table. And Paul says he looked at that and said, this was not in line with the gospel. This is a gospel issue. Because he looks at Peter and said, what you just did is you created a cool kid's table and a not cool kid's table. You created the real spiritual people and the not as real spiritual people. The varsity spiritual people and the JV spiritual people. And Paul says, the gospel's not stratified vertically that way. We are recipients of his grace. And he gives that complex argument about the law. He's like, hey, we knew the law wouldn't justify us. And so we let go of trying to use the law that way and we clung to Christ. And now you're trying to make Gentiles follow the law that we couldn't follow? He says, you're trying to erect what you tore down? All you're doing there is proving you were a lawbreaker to ever tear it down. 
And so it's a complex argument, but he's telling him, hey, what you're doing does not make sense because he says in verse 16, we know a person's not justified, not made right by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I love that he says it over and over again. It's not by works of the law. It's by justified by grace in Christ because it's not by works of the law, because not by works of the law will you be justified. He's like, am I clear? You don't earn this. You don't deserve it. He gave himself away. That's our gospel. But there's something about us, and maybe it's cultural pressure, or maybe it's that internal sense of guilt that we go, I gotta find a way to, to earn this. I'm sitting in the truck trying to figure out what assets do I have to balance the scale out. Uh, I had a pastor years ago read us this uh, testimony of a missionary. So this is somebody serving on the mission field And she wrote, God's demands of me were so high, his opinion of me so low, there was no way for me to live except under his frown. All day long he nagged me, why don't you pray more? Why don't you witness more? When will you ever learn self-discipline? How can you allow yourself to indulge in such wicked thoughts? Do this, don't do that, yield, confess, work harder. God was always using his love against me. He'd show me his nail-pierced hands, and then he would look at me glaringly and say, well, you... Well, why aren't you a better Christian? Get busy and live the way you ought to. Most of all, I had a God who down underneath considered me to be less than dirt. Oh, he made a great ado about loving me, but I believe that the day-to-day love and acceptance I longed for could only be mine if I let him crush everything that was really me. When I came down to it, there was scarcely a word or a feeling or a thought or a decision of mine that God really liked. And for some of us, that, that's how you see God a constantly disappointed father. And that's why you work so hard to earn the approval of somebody. Now, I'm not advocating not using your gifts and using your life to do something productive in the world, but I'm saying if you make your motivation to earn peace, that's slavery. You will never be free. It's not enough. And yet there's a pull to works. If I climb hard enough, I can make myself okay. And so Paul has to go to war with it and has to yell at you and call you names to get you to stop. And then he does something really beautiful. In Galatians chapter three, he turns back to them and he argues from their experience, how did you get the love of God anyway? How did you get his spirit in your heart? Was it by earning it? Or was it by the grace of Jesus? And he starts talking about how the spirit of God, the spirit that filled the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the spirit that spun creation into being, that spirit now lives in us because of the finished work of Jesus. But we won't unpack all that. He's asking them about their experiential argument, but, but we'll do that next week. But then he moves on to give them a scriptural argument, and it's really powerful. He uses the power of the promise God gave to Abraham. Abraham, when he's trying to show you salvation is not by effort, but by God's grace, he does something interesting. He takes them to the OJ, the original Jew, and says, how was he right with God? The assumption being, if you're like, was Abraham right with God? They'd be like, yes, it's Father Abraham. Many sons, many sons, and Father Abraham. I'm one of them, so are you. So let's just pray the Lord. Uh, it's a little Sunday school uh, reference. But uh, of course, Father Abraham was right with God. And his argument is, well, how did he get there? Did he get there by obeying the law? Oops, gotcha. Because if you remember our little history lesson, 
Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons, the 12 sons became 12 tribes, those 12 tribes went down into Egypt, they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, Moses set them free, and then Moses gives them the law in Exodus, so the law came 430 years after Abraham. So how was Abraham right with God? It wasn't by obeying a law that didn't exist yet. And yet, and then he quotes Genesis, Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham said, God, I believe you. And God said, that makes you right with me. Now, to be clear, Abraham didn't just believe there was a God. I'm not saying just believe there's a deity and you're good. It's a little bit more specific than that. In Genesis 3, when humanity broke faith with God and everything broke, God said to them, I will put enmity between the serpent, the one who deceived you, and this woman. And then he calls the seed of the woman he. He will crush the serpent's head while he bruises his heel. The solution to our sin in Genesis 3 is a savior. A serpent-crushing savior is gonna come for us. And so a few generations later, Noah is named Noah by his dad. That name means rest because he says, perhaps my boy will be the one who gives us rest from the curse of Genesis 3. That, that there's this mindset of a boy's gonna come that will take the curse away. And Noah wasn't it. He was a picture of it, but he wasn't it. And then on through history, you get these genealogies. Why? Because we're tracing the family lineage. Which one will be the seed who takes the curse away? And then we get to Abraham. And Abraham, God tells him, I want you to move into that strategic piece of real estate I'm gonna put you in. And from there, I'm gonna bless you. And through your seed, I will bless the whole world. And did you notice in Galatians, Paul points out that word seed wasn't plural. It was singular. A boy is coming from you who will be a blessing to the whole world. And in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God. I believe you. I believe you are coming to rescue us. I believe you're sending a hero. I believe you. And God said, your trust in me and what I'm doing makes you right with me. It reckons righteousness to you. Uh, that word reckon, it's the idea of transferring to your account. Uh, back when I was a youth pastor and got uh, paid in cheese sandwiches and happy feelings, uh, I could barely afford a cell phone. And I remember this uh, other lady came up to me at one point and she worked for a cell phone company. And she said, uh, hey, um, I work for this company. They give us free phones all the time. Uh, here's your new phone. And she handed me like this brand new state-of-the-art phone. I'm like, are you serious? She's like, yeah. She's like, here's the deal. Uh, they give me like thousands of minutes. This is back when they counted every single minute. And she said, I have all these minutes I will never use. And so here's what I did. Your phone's ready to go. And I just transferred the minutes out of my account to your account. So now your account has thousands of minutes. Not that you earned because you're poor and a youth pastor and couldn't possibly earn it. And not by anything you've done. You don't work there. They don't know you. She didn't say all that, but it was implied. But she's saying like, <laughs> there's no way you and your station could get this in your account. And yet me in the position I'm in and through what I've accomplished, I'm taking what is mine and I'm sticking it in your account. So you use it as if it's yours because it is yours, but we know you didn't earn it. I did, but I took it and imputed it to you. I reckoned it to your account. I handed it to you. That's what she did and I, I used it. And that's what he's saying. Abraham's like, there, there's nobody here making ourselves right with God. There's no ladder to climb. And God's like, exactly. And I know, God, you are working a plan to rescue us through your chosen seed. And I believe you and I trust you. And God says, that's what I'm looking for. That makes you right. And he looks at them and said, hey, how did God make Abraham right? By obeying the law? It didn't exist yet. But he trusted what God was doing. 
God gave him a promise. And because he had that promise, he was right with God. And what I love about that is he says the law added later doesn't violate it. That was that human example part where he says when a man-made covenant is made, no one annuls it by adding to it once it's been ratified. He says you don't add to a covenant later. Like if I was selling you my house and I said, here, I'm selling you the house and you and I would kind of debate on it. Well, who gets to mitigate the mold or who's gonna fix the roof? And we go back and forth and we negotiate a price per square foot. But when we both sign the contract and you move into the house, I don't come knocking the door later and be like, oh, and $100 million too. You'd be like, no, you can't change it. You already did it. And that was his argument. God looked at Abraham and said, you put your faith in me, that makes you righteous. And then he says, and he preached the gospel beforehand to the Gentiles saying, all the nations will be blessed through you, the man of faith. How do we get the blessings of God by faith and a God who's working his means of rescue. And a law added 400 plus years later doesn't get to add to that contract. So you don't take Jesus plus obedience to the law because Jesus plus something is nothing. It's Jesus plus nothing that's everything. And so then what's the purpose of the law? This is where we're gonna close. You go, then why do we have all this? Well, he gives us a couple reasons. We'll just look at one. He says, why the law? It was added because of transgression. And then he says in verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What was the point of the law? He said it was to lock us up. It was to show you what sin is. Hey, don't just pick some arbitrary standard that if you're good enough, God will grade on a curve and you'll be fine. No, let's get serious. Let's show the holiness of God on paper. And when you see the law, try to follow it. Read Leviticus and try to obey all of it. You will not make it. And neither did they. That's why even if they did everything right, they still had to offer a sacrifice for sin because it's never enough. And yet you were supposed to look at that every day and go, I can't do this. And that was the point to lock you up, to say, I can't get out of this. I can't earn my way out of this. It was to show you what sin is and to rob you of any hope that you could get out of it on your own. And then it structured their society with all these symbols and pictures of, but an innocent lamb will be sacrificed for me. Blood will be shed that covers my violation because God wants to tabernacle with us. That's why God's tent was in the middle of their tent. God wants a relationship with you, but he's holy, you're not, and you are not the standard. He is, how can you get to it? Somebody else has to be innocent in your place. Someone else has to suffer on your behalf. Someone else's blood has to cover your violation of the law so you can have the peace with God you were meant to have. And that's the argument he says here. If you try to follow the law, you're cursed because you can't do it. But then he points out that weird little passage that says, but the law also says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. That's a weird passage. You gotta follow all these laws and don't hang on trees. You know, what is that about? Well, it's what Jesus Christ said about himself. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. As it said, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ came and said, I didn't come to abolish this law. He said, I came to fulfill it. He says, I'm gonna be the perfect human representative and I'm gonna fulfill the human end of our contract with God. And he's the only one who ever did it. And so he deserved all the blessings of the law. But then he says, 
but I'm going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I'm going to take the curse from you. You don't need to be cursed. You're the only one who did. You are the only one who doesn't deserve to be cursed. And he says, yeah, I'm going to be the perfect representative you could not be. And then I'm going to take your curse from you. And that's why I'm going to hang on that tree. I'm going to be perfect where you could not. And then I'm going to take the curse from you so that you can be justified by faith in the God who told Abraham centuries before, I'm sending a hero to set you free. I had a young kid come up to me at Passion once and he said, you just keep telling people they can be forgiven if you just trust in Jesus. He says, but you don't know what I've done. And I said, you're right, son, I don't know what you've done. And I don't know what you've done to hurt other people. There's kind of civil laws. If you've done something illegal, we gotta talk about. But I'm not saying you can just be forgiven. I said, I don't know what you've done, but I don't think you understand what he's done. He lived the law perfectly where you could not. And then he died the excruciating death you deserved. And what was the purpose of this law? The passage is clear. The law was a signpost leading you to Christ. It showed you your sin and you can't get out. And then it pointed you to a savior who would take the curse for you. And so if you use the law as a signpost to get you to Christ, you've used the law lawfully. But if you take this law and use it as a supplement to add to Christ, well, I believe in Christ and I gotta, and I gotta, and I gotta. You nullify the grace of God and you insult the very purpose of the law. That's why when Jesus talked to the Pharisees, he said, you guys are trying to find the minimum standard. You're missing the heartbeat. It's not just don't murder. It's don't hold resentment in your heart. Jesus elevated this. You guys are missing the heart of God. I wanna elevate this law to show you it's impossible for you to keep it. And so when you fall on your knees and ask for mercy, it comes rushing in. You don't understand what I've done. You don't understand what he's done. This law is a signpost to point you to Christ. It is not a supplement to add to Christ. Now that leads to some questions. Well, then aren't Christians supposed to be good people? I mean, aren't they supposed to be nice? Isn't that kind of y'all's whole deal? You're telling me you don't have to be nice to be right with God? That it was Jesus who was, did it all for you? Yeah. But what he did changes us. And that's next week. But let me end by saying it's interesting that American Worldview Inventory by Barna in 2020, a huge percentage of Americans said, uh, you can earn your way to heaven. In 2023, it dropped to, uh, by 10%. And something about the pandemic showed a significant percentage of us Maybe we're not okay. Maybe we're not good. Maybe when things are going good, I think I'm good. But when things aren't going good, I realize I'm not so good. And here's the beauty of it. That's where grace starts. I told the story weeks ago, and I'll just won't go through all the details again, but end with when I was in Italy, we had a friend with us with a debilitating physical disease. It, it made it very difficult for her to walk, her joints would literally grind bone on bone. And we were in a city in Italy where we didn't have a place to stay and it was a group of us trying to find a hostel, trying to find a hotel, trying to find anything and couldn't find a place. Finally, a man had pity on us and said, I'll go stay with my friend, you can rent my house. And he gave us the address and it was at the top of a hill. And this girl was so self-sufficient and so strong, I can do her anything. But as we started up that hill, she started to cry because as strong as she is, as, 
as disciplined and dedicated, she realized, I don't have what it takes to get where I need to go, to make it home. And so I looked at her and said, if we're gonna make it before the morning, I've gotta carry you. And I put her on my back and I've told you this story as we started to walk up the hill, suddenly I feel all this moving around behind me and she's jerking around at all these different angles. And finally I stopped and I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm trying to help you. And I said, what you're doing is not helping. It's distracting and frankly dishonoring to what I'm trying to accomplish, right? I didn't say that, but it was implied. <laughs> what I need you to do, what I need you to do is let your shoulders drop and stop. Stop earning, stop striving, stop trying to pay back what you can't. But let someone stronger carry you up that hill all the way home. That's the gospel. That's why we sing. Why do we sing at the beginning? We sing because it's amazing, a grace that would save a wretch like me. That's why we sing, because he did what the law could not. Not because the law is imperfect, but because we are. And it's Jesus plus nothing that gives us everything. And when you understand that, I promise you, your life will change from the inside out. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thank you for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.